Welcome to the latest episode of Tech Salescast with me, James Hounslow. And today I'm delighted to be joined from the CRO of Human Made, Ross Halliday. Ross, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So look, really appreciate you taking time out to, uh, to talk to us. There's loads of great information for us to uh, dive into with you. But as always, as a way of getting started, if you don't mind just giving the audience a bit of a background of, of who you are. Uh, yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, uh, Ross Haldi, um, CRO company of uh, Human Made. We are a development agency organisation uh, split into two divisions of agency services and a product uh, called Altis. I've been in the leadership space since 2008, I guess, show my age there. Um, and predominantly from uh, a MarTech background. So uh, worked with a couple of the large enterprise businesses and people like Oracle and Adobe. And then in around about 2013, moved into London startup community uh, with growing SaaS technologies. And yeah, that I guess more or less brings me to where I am today in a, a paraphrased way. Awesome. So going back to the beginning, when we're talking about you know, the idea of this podcast here is to talk about leadership and share... Mm-hmm advice what made you move from sales into leadership i think early on i found that i kind of had i guess just a, a natural quality of decision making yeah. authority so i was quite happy to make a decision and stand behind the consequences of that and i recognized quite quickly around me that there was a lot of hesitation specifically in that space you know whether that's fear of reprisal whether that's uncertainty whether that's that skills or knowledge I found that naturally I was quite comfortable doing that and that was valued by the peer group and the businesses I was working with them. And so I guess that just naturally elevated me to, to a position of uh, supervision and leadership. And so you did that in 2008, which was mm-hmm. probably economically uh, a pretty, probably one of your first real challenging times then to move into mm-hmm. leadership. How did you find working in that conditions and what did you learn off the back of going into it in, in 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 a difficult time yeah i mean it's a great question i think you know there's elements of that relevant today um you know in, in terms of where we are so i think for me very much it was about consistency was critical i think the first thing we go to in times of challenge is to change uh, behaviors or change strategies or change directions and a belief that we need to change something to affect something uh, and I actually argue the opposite. I think it's about consolidating your strengths and staying consistent to those. And ultimately, that will kind of pull you through the, the more challenging times. I think you need to be recognizing the importance of uh, presence and visibility as a leader during those times. The, ultimately, the people that help drive you through you know, are the contributors at market facing level. And as a leader, they need to feel your presence and know that your trust and support is very much with them. So one of the things that I definitely remember doing is being, I'd, I'd recognise, probably more active, just in terms of kind of being tactically there and available to speak, to counsel, to support, um, and ultimately to empathise in, in more challenging times. Interesting. And I, I guess if you were speaking to your then self now, knowing the experience you've had there, and I guess what we're going into or, or could be going into to now, what would be the key things that you might have done differently then that you know now and that you might be implementing now if we go down the same sort of corridor? I think definitely, um, you know, when you're creating your strategy or your plan, make sure you're doing so in times of those recognised frugalities. It's very easy to get fat at the feast. And, you know, we've had some phenomenal years of 
performance. We've got so many years of commercial growth. And so when you're planning your strategies in those years, it's very difficult to remember the, the more trying times. Yeah. So I think it's really, uh, you know, documenting and taking your learnings from those times, the things that worked effectively, and making sure that you kind of embed that as a kind of discipline process consistently through both the, the good and the bad. Because for most businesses that I'm speaking to, and I'm speaking to a lot of peers right now, I think many of them are, Q1 and Q2 have not been high-performing quarters for them. They're, they're not recognizing that they're going to be achieving big things necessarily this year. There is a bit of a consistent theme. Last year was a good year. You know, we, we knocked out the park, but, you know, we don't seem to be kind of doing well this year. And a lot of that's because we haven't planned for this year being a slowdown. We plan for it being another growth. So I think you've always got to keep an eye on that, uh, that recognized contingency as part of this like it you've had quite a lot of experience within the startup world founders what would you say if you are speaking to particularly first-time founders it's very interesting a lot of them are very product-led side of it what did you learn as a sales leader from your experience within those that kind of startup world as to how to educate founders and knowing what you're going to get into if it's a first-time founder I mean, I think the first thing you need to do if you're a sales leader is, is qualify your audience. I think that's true of, of sales discipline. I've worked with some of le- legitimately the best people and, and founders, real visionaries, but also very open to how to fulfill that vision beyond their own um, selves. I've also worked for the opposite. I've worked for those CEOs who are visionaries, but only see the vision in their own eyes, don't recognize the uh, limitations of market audience and competitive landscapes. And ultimately, it does create a, a, a ne- negative cycle of relationship. And I find myself in that more than one occasion. And I'd, you know, I'd say to any sales leader moving into the startup space or, or looking to work directly with founders is, yeah, spend time really getting to know your founders first and getting to recognize what are their levers? What are they willing to forgo? What are they not willing to forgo? What are the things that they are dead set on and won't change from? And, you know, set that basis of relationship up ahead of time. You know, I guess the sales adage is upfront contract. You know, you really need to set the scene of expectation. What, how are we going to work together? What's the expectation? Product vision CEOs are just some of the best, but also by their own self-recognition, some of the worst. Just because you see value in a product does not mean the market does. So you're seeking proof of validation. You're seeking competitive validation. Is there a market space already for this? As a sales leader, you're often commoditized in a performant way. So if this doesn't work, then the first person to go is you. And the reality is you are really quarterbacking an entire business infrastructure. You're quarterbacking engineering, you're quarterbacking product, you're quarterbacking marketing, as well as your sales teams. You need these elements to come together. Think of yourself as a chef. You know, you need the recipe to to bake the cake and you need to qualify that with these uh, founders and make sure they understand that ahead of kind of taking that step in there. The easiest thing to do is look at the big salary and the idea that you could be a single person that can have the dream. You could be the guy that takes them to series and to exit. I've been that guy. And that's an ego play. And it doesn't end well, I can tell you from personal experience. And I think recognizing that you are only the sum of that entire group, including the CEO and founder, um, is a really important step to qualify ahead of any decision you make. And from your experience of VCs, mm. Is the VC or who the VC is that important? Also, uh, it's becoming more of a trend now where there's multiple VCs involved. Like normally at Seed, you'll have like quite a few range of investors and then there becomes sort of like a main 
BC, but there seems to be a lot of joint forces going on. Is that important or is it don't worry about that just as long as you've got the other bits aligned? For me personally today, it's of, of huge importance. I've been exposed to many VCs who come under different guises and expectations. If you're in a, a, a real startup, you know, and I'm talking, you know, maybe less than 10 and, you know, maybe you're one of two or three and you're looking to, you know, penetrate your market activities as part of that. Having VCs on board who've walked those paths, invested in those organizations, you know, recognize the nuances can make the introductions, have a network to support you with are absolutely critical factors to be able to kind of embed a foundational success. Having a VC who we know are, are very much, you know, many of who are hand, handing you a doll with the expectation of a ton of two within the next 12 months creates a very different operational environment for you to work within. I'd say that those are becoming less. I think, the, you know, the, to, to, to recognise and accept that the, the VC space is also evolving. I think people recognise they need to bring more than just money to the table. And I see a lot of smart founders looking for capital in a way that they can take that and invest that. So I think for me, I look at the VC portfolio of any business, no matter where they're at. And a lot of my decision in joining an organization is based on that portfolio, certainly even to the point where I've requested direct access and conversation with VCs ahead of time. Sometimes that's part of the interview process anyway. VCs want to interview executives as part of that part. But if they're not, again, that's honestly a bit of a flag for me. Why do your VCs not want to speak to the person that's leading the commercial goals of this company? Why do they not want to validate my credentials and capabilities? And also be open to questions from me so very very important as far as i'm concerned interesting thanks for sharing that so it, it wouldn't be right to not talk about hiring based that there's a lot of people saying about the war on talent at the moment and uh, people have got mm. their opinions and it worries but you've built many a sales team what have you learned through building these sales teams in very different environments that you're putting into you've had a you know and we'll come on to it shortly what you what you've been doing where you are now, but what key things have you put in to identify candidates or what you're looking for and how you identify when you're interviewing them that they're absolutely right for your business? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I think the first thing to recognize is you will feel many times before you really get the, the sense of kind of what you want. And businesses are made up of unique individuals, not the kind of um, duplication of one. And I think that's really, really important. Be very clear on the vision you want to achieve with the team that you're recruiting mm -hmm. and build your team of individuals towards that vision. I see so many leaders, and I've definitely done this myself, where all I'm looking for is 10 high-performing account executives. It does not work, in my experience. It really does not work. I know the old analogy about family versus sports teams, and, and you know, it certainly for me did definitely still stays very relevant. So I initially kind of set up with an expectation of what are the landscapes or the elements that we want to play with? So what are the markets? You know, what are the product positionings? Are we running different tiering structures? Do we have enterprise and meds? What are geolocations? What are the cultural considerations versus that we need to factor? And then I will go about looking to build a team around those specific things as opposed to just looking for someone that's got a very cool CV with high-performing talent attached to it. Because the high-performing talent doesn't always transfer. I think that's a really important thing to recognize. I've definitely seen that. And really, you want someone also that can come in and actually share the vision of opportunity. So as a leader, when I'm assessing an organization to join, I look at all the variables that I need to, to see whether or not there's a, a bona fide opportunity for us to move into market space and take a large market share. When I have a team of salespeople around me and they speak to the same language and see the same opportunity, not we're already there, but like this is where we could be. 
there's a real unity of vision within that and that creates a natural collective goal and that in turn is a very powerful bonding experience for us to, to drive forward in both through good times but also through more challenging times. Interesting. And and all of that sounds absolutely right, which is why obviously you've learned to be successful on the hiring part. But how do you adapt your interview process to make sure that you are interviewing for those key characteristics? Because it can become really easy to just ask about performance. How do you do sale? What's your process? Who do you know? What was your target last year? How many times have you been on President's Club? It's really easy to, to go to that, particularly when a hiring manager is hiring with a end goal in mind, which is I've got to increase revenue by X amount. So how, how are you crafting your process to say, right, actually, this is what I'm looking for. What do I do in the interview process to make sure I'm as best I possibly can? Can't, there's no full book on it, but to get the answers out that help you understand that they are the right fit. I think for me, this thing I start with is I'm hiring humans. Yeah. I'm hiring a person. I'm hiring a person that's fallible, has emotions, has other life activities and stresses. And the thing that I'm looking for in my interviews is human that recognizing those things. I, I don't care how many president clubs you've been on. I don't care if your CV says you've done 250% last year. Like there's those mean, I mean, look, congratulations. They're phenomenal achievements. Don't get me wrong, but there's no relevancy to those things to, to my thing. Um, you know, you've done that for another organization and, and this organization doesn't have a president's cup, right? So like there's, there's an example of that's not going to transfer. I think, you know, for me, I'm first, first interview stage is purely human engagement. Pure use of human, what makes you tick? What are your motivations? What's going on in your life right now? Buying a house, getting married, having a baby, love traveling. What are your motivators at, at, on a human level? Um, more and more, I think we're seeing this kind of moving away from this expected hustle culture of you know sales activity, and we are looking at more of a balanced culture. So if you see yourself in your work and your work can replicate a number of your behavioral and human traits, I think that bond is much, much stronger. And I think your investment into that is much, much clearer. And so for us, it's very much we start with that human element. And once we get to a sense of who you are as a human, then yes, we move into a more traditional process of, okay, let's, you know, somewhat critically analyze your uh, past experiences. We very much take a, an approach of example modeling on that. So, you know, providing with tangible examples of where you can talk to that specific thing as opposed to this looks great in your CV. And then, yeah, we finish off with the human element as well. So we start with the human, the fallible, the person, the things that make them tech, the motivators. We embed, obviously, I guess, the, the formal around the structure, the, the, the discipline, uh, the experience. And then we also finish off on the human around things like how did they feel? What was their alignment? What are their aspirational goals? You know, the classic example of, you know, where did they see their ability to go from this particular opportunity? If an individual hasn't got a, a sense of self, then that would be something that would immediately probably stop me in my tracks. Okay. So you're the sales leader. Ultimately, you're responsible for the people in revenue. You have a job opening. There's a candidate that you want to get into the interview process. At what point do they meet you? First, second, third? First. First. I mean, they'll probably, so they'll probably do a screening conversation with the recruitment team. So that's maybe a you know, we've identified you or you've submitted your CV. They'll come to me. They've got very clear understands. Again, it's another thing. Set a clear expectation with your recruitment team. What is it you're looking for? If you're looking for a president club, 200 percenters, tell them that. 
you know, if that's not what you're looking for, if you're looking for, you know, opportunity potential, maybe, then tell them that. Be clear to them because they've got a tough bloody job and triaging 200 CVs is not an easy or enjoyable task. Uh, so they'll go through that, maybe 10 minutes, quick screen, tick, 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 and then yeah, straight to me every time. And then I will pass that back into management or leadership teams, and then they'll come back and, and likely finish with me and maybe one or two of those other people as well. I totally agree with that, and I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. But why do you do that? Why have you chosen to be the first person that these people would engage with? I guess, you know, my leadership style, um, you know, and I, I try and lean towards, I guess, the empathic leadership model is very much, I feel I'm intimately close to my existing team. And so recognizing the behavioral and human elements that would complement that team, um, that would elevate that team, I feel very confident that I can do. So that initial triage of how does this person fit in the team? You know, how do they connect? How do they uh, uplift the current team that we've got? How do they contribute to additional skills and behaviors? Is something I feel kind of very passionate about. And so for me, it's very much a, let me get a sense of this before we bring additional investment into this conversation. Because recruitment process, as you know, James, is an investment for a business. Yeah. And taking people's time out to, you know, build the architecture, build the structure, create the questions, you know, do the interviews, it's all, all unnecessary. Um, but before we commit to doing that at an investment level, there has to be a sense of this is the right investment to start with. And I guess that I take that as my responsibility. Like it. I really appreciate your insight in, on that side of things. I think it's a really important part. I think, you know, part of the success that you have is by doing that first stage interview because you get the right people into the process that you want. But the biggest thing that I think a lot of leaders are forgetting right now is that salespeople don't tend to leave a business. They tend to leave a leader, but they also join a leader. And, and that seems to get missed. They seem to think like we've got the greatest product. We've got the greatest commission scheme. And Great salespeople can sell average products. It's about who's the enabler within this business to help me do what I want to do. And by mm. doing that at the first stage where there's lots of opportunities going on, getting that engagement from the beginning, I think is um, absolutely critical. But I'm excited to dive into the latest story that you're on now. Mm -hmm. um, love to know who these guys are, why you chose these guys over the opportunities. And also just have a little bit of a dive into how you're making remote working work so well. So the first one, mm. exactly who are these guys and why did you join these guys off the, uh, the, the list of opportunities that you probably could have gone to? Big, big, big questions, James. Um, okay, so who are these? So Human Made, um, as mentioned before, get a web development agency um, specifically focused on enterprise open source WordPress. Started by two brothers, Tom and Joe, over a decade ago, and joined by a third friend, Dino Talk, who is part of our product business, and I'm CEO of our product business office. The bottom line is, these are two guys that set out to really move the needle on, on WordPress and on WordPress technology, and they didn't do it with any real expectation of themselves. They fast forward 10 years and were a 90-person organization with some of the world's leading brands and top uh, WordPress sites created a team of almost 100 people and two years ago launched a uh, hosting product and this year uh, within the last couple of months we've launched our SaaS integration for digital experience product as well which is currently in beta. So it's been a phenomenal journey for these guys uh, predominantly focused on the agency space which is a relatively new space for me you know being quite exposed to something which is kind of service based as opposed to kind of product or, or a solution based um, and obviously my initial approach and recruitment to the company two years ago, uh, roughly now, was very much based on 
we're building out this product concept in hosting to a digital experience platform, product background. Can you help us come in and understand how to commercialize and go to market around those things? So yeah, that's the who we are, I guess, piece. Why did I join Human Made? Wow, it's a pretty big story. So I don't, I don't, I'll give you the high levels. The bottom line is the things that I spoke to today. Upon meeting with the founders, very specifically, I was treated very much first and foremost as, as a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were keen to understand me, my motivators, the things that I value, the things that I see as important. They were open to the fact that I'm fallible, uh, that it's not a guaranteed success to recruit someone with my background. And we talked quite extensive throughout the process around that and throughout the exposure that I've had to the startup space and to founders and founder behavior, as you mentioned earlier on in the call. So between the two parties, we had some really honest, very transparent discussions around expectations of hiring a commercial leader into your company. We had very honest and transparent communications about the things that weren't in place that would need to be in place in order to make a success. That's back to the recipe conversation. And ultimately for me, the thing that bound me to Tom Jono way more than it has done in any other founding team in the past has just been the trust element that they extended and afforded to me from, from day one and even from before day one. So uh, they were willing to expose themselves and expose the realities of their understanding, their learnings, their limitations as a group of humans and as a business. And so they really were saying to me, look, this is the honest space that you have to work with. Like, if you're willing to take it on, we know it's not perfect. We know that there's things out there that are probably offering you more money and are more perfect, but this is who we are. And, you know, that for me is a hundred times the value of any company that kind of sells itself as we've got the best thing. We've got everything locked down. We grew 300% last year. We're going to do 600% this year. It's like, it's not easy to spot a lie in this world after you've got the experience that I've got. And their sense of honesty was the thing that drew me to them like it so the bit that i really want to to get into is that you have a global sales team um pretty much covering the four corners of the globe and and you're the sales leader sat in in the middle firstly what are the biggest challenges you found by having a remote workforce lack of sleep (laughs) (laughs) um I think it's about keeping that kind of that access to self. You know, the two time zones that I straddle relatively easily are the APAC and EMEAs. And, you know, the time zone that I guess only gets a couple of hours of my time or did only get a couple of hours of my time would be the Americas. And yeah. so you've kind of got to look at that and say, okay, what's my working practice to afford my team access to me um, in a way that's fair and favorable? Otherwise, you're just dominating um, the EMEA teams with your availability, that doesn't always create a uh, best working practice. Yeah. So definitely looking at your working day and how you optimize your working day for your remote teams was probably one of the first things that uh, needed to be addressed. And that's like, you know, starting earlier, right? So maybe I'm running a, you know, a seven to five day, you know, maybe I'm running a, you know, an eight to six day. Um, but what I'm not doing is running a, you know, nine to five day. That's just not a thing to consider as part of that for me. Interesting. And um, so what have you brought in or processed that in play that has enabled you to make the remote work? And, and I think, look, I, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, but do you think you'd have been able to do the 300% growth last year the prediction of around the the 600 this year without covering the globe right if you were just in one geography could you have done it and if not 
what has made it work? No, I mean, I don't think you can. I mean, just to be clear, by the way, we, we haven't grown 300% last year. We're not growing 600 this year. Well, it was just a, an example. I, just, I don't want to say that's what our business is doing. Otherwise, I'll get shot by the CEO and he'll be like, where is that money? <laughs> um, but, you know, our success last year, it was a record year for us, right? So it was a, a historical record year in the 10 years that we've been operating as a business. So it was a phenomenal year. And no, I don't think we could have done it without being globally distributed. Why? I just think that's the reality of the market space right now. It's, it's a global market. You know, I, I think you're definitely limiting your success if you're not global. I recognize a consolidated market opportunities, um, you know, creating an environment and building up a stable platform um, is an effective business way to go to market. But I think technology, the thing that creates such wonderful innovation around technology is the fact that it's global, is the fact that it's touched by many. Um, and the experiences within each of these regions that we have globally ultimately feed back into our business narrative and our business evolution because we're learning different requirements within different spaces. So I think it's absolutely been critical in our successes so far and will continue to be. And one of the biggest areas that leaders have struggled with when having a remote workforce is getting people to feel part of a team because they feel people are isolated. Do you think that's a mindset thing that people are thinking that people will think they're isolated because they're at home all the time? And are there any things that you guys are doing which are making people feel more part of the uh, the family? I think it's a very real thing, isolation. You know, I, I think it's a very real thing. I don't think we've we 100% overcome that as a remote business, but I think we definitely call it out and recognise that. And so Human Made have, you know, a public handbook that anybody can go and find. And in that handbook, we talk a lot about remote working. We talk a lot about our behavioural values. We talk a lot about the importance of work-life balance. We've created a large number of spaces, both within the workspace, within obviously things like our Slack channels, as well as obviously designated meeting spaces for, you know, hangouts, games, town halls to communicate, team hangouts where needed. And we still encourage wherever possible to be able to do localised meetups. I think the thing you've got to recognise as a leader is, you know, you need to learn a little bit about isolation practice. And you need to learn a little bit about the behaviours that start to form. Yeah. People that are isolated and begin to suffer from isolation tend to withdraw quite quickly. And those things can be identified very early on. And you definitely do have a sense of care and responsibility and duty to people. Um, and again, back to the human element of who we are as a company, of who I am as a person. That human element is really important to maybe not overemphasise, but definitely keep conscious of in a remote business. Seeing someone in an office and, you know, seeing them from last week to this week, it's quite easy to physically identify someone that's maybe not having a good day. It's not so easy over Zoom. And especially if you're maybe not speaking to someone on Zoom, maybe you're speaking to them on Slack. Um, so you have to look for nuances in behaviour and language behaviour that help identify that there's maybe something at play and then provide, obviously, the support structures for that if it becomes a thing. Now, most leaders like yourself are hired to build a sales team. Mm take it to, to the next level we, we've spoken a little bit about your recruitment process and look, I think from a leader standpoint part of your job is to to hire in a players where you can be able to identify and attract those but more importantly it's creating a players because you, you can't fill a team of Ronaldo's it, it, it doesn't work and you probably wouldn't want a, a whole team of um, Ronaldo because the dynamics don't work so from a remote standpoint we're it's much harder. So we see, you know, I talk to sales leaders all the time. I say that we bring people together. We bring people in from the outside to come in and do some coaching sessions. I am a big believer that a VP of sales is a coach, a development of salespeople and an enabler of salespeople to do what they need to do. Mm. How do you coach 
people in different time zones every week or, or every day? How does it work for you? How do you plan it or do you not? Uh, yeah, I think we do some planning and some ad hoc, you know, so we definitely expose technologies for this. Um, so we'll be we having maybe more centralised coaching around maybe a specific topic uh, or a methodology. I tend to deploy things like, you know, utilise your Lumni videos, you know, record the session so people can first observe and absorb the kind of methodology. So then when we follow up in the in-person meetings, there's already a kind of sense of start. There's a sense of kind of start from an order of understanding. So I think, you know, the first thing to do when you're coaching is to bring people to understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And you can do that relatively easily and relatively asynchronously. I have one-to-ones with every single person on my team. So I think that's a total of about 18 people every single week. They're designated 30-minute slots. It does take up a, a heavy amount of my week, as you'd imagine, by the calculations. But those one-to-ones are really, really designed to dive into the very specific individual needs of that person. You spoke there about um, the responsibility. The thing I've said to my team from day one is my job is to facilitate your success. My job is to remove the blockers that are creating you, you know, friction towards that success and ultimately be there to kind of optimize the best of who you can be. And I very much stand true to that. And so the time I spend, both structured and unstructured, is very much focused on optimizing that individual's capabilities. Sometimes it's a conversation around a specific deal or a specific stakeholder. Other times it's a more embedded structure, like a, a methodology or a practice objection handling, whatever it may be. The thing to recognize is it doesn't stop. You don't sheep dip someone into coaching for two weeks and then be like, right, you're trained, off you go. You know, like that's just not a thing, right? Like maybe some days I wish it was. It's not. It's yeah. not. It's a constant thing that you must commit and invest to. You need to stay ahead of those things yourself and you stay ahead of those by being close to those things. So how many customer meetings are you attending? How often are you exposing yourself to the reality of market? Are you sitting in an ivory tower as a leader, just dictating and expecting? Or are you very much on the ground and actively um, supporting? And I 100% value doing the second. Interesting. Love it. So I know you have a busy day, um, but before I let you go, what's the plan going forwards? Are you guys scaling or are you thinking about the economics and how it is and um, and just seeing how things uh, pan out? Uh, yeah, look, we, we built a two-year strategy um, that very much focuses on the scale. Um, as mentioned, we made a decision six months ago to actually reconsolidate on our um, human media agency services business. And we've just done a, a refresh on that specific division. And we launched recently, obviously, our um, SaaS integration uh, digital experience uh, plugin which has gone public beta this week. So our focus is very much about new market opportunity, moving into uh, existing markets with higher value product offering and in turn expect that to obviously return uh, growth and in turn that growth will be very much invested in growing our business uh, across the, the regions we operate. So yeah, consolidate, be smart with your investments. By all accounts, you know, it's going to be a challenging time, but investment will not stop. It will just be redirected in a prioritized fashion and we will follow suit with that. And do you see yourself hiring for growth during the next couple of years? That would be my expectation. You know, I think, you know, some of the worst practices is is stop hiring during these periods. So I think you've got to recognize that the thing that will move you through these periods is also looking at hiring the right individuals in the right areas of your business. There are still businesses hiring. And so you also need to recognize you don't want to be left behind. You know, the market's not going to be static. It's just going to be slow. And so, you know, get aligned to that. So perhaps the headcount will reduce from 20 down to 10. You know, maybe you're consolidating on a kind of format like that. But yes, I would anticipate hiring and forming very much part of both plans. 
Awesome. Well, Rosla, really appreciate you taking time out and chatting through your journey. I think a lot of listeners will learn a lot from hearing you chat through. So thank you very much. And I'll let you get back to your day. Perfect. Thank you, James. Thanks for all the questions. No worries.